Welcome to the Beyond the Sermon podcast, where we take your questions from Sunday's teachings in order to form a dialogue about the scriptures and what God is teaching each and every one of us. Welcome back to the Beyond the Sermon podcast. Today is February 27th, and this morning we were in Acts chapter 17, looking at verses 1 through 34. This is this just, just this really beautiful whole chapter, and we see this. We see the, this progression in it. Uh, Paul and Silas and company—they have just been uh, booted out of Philippi, and they've made their way to Thessalonica. And as they arrive in Thessalonica, uh, there again, they're they're preaching the gospel, and they're they're stir. You know, the, the crowds are being stirred up by these the, these Jewish religious figures who are jealous. Luke tells us of of Paul and and the message that he's preaching. They 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 don't they don't buy it they're they're suspicious of it the whole nine yards and and, and so Paul he ends up being moved by the brothers uh, those that reference of the Christians other Christians in Thessalonica uh, at night and they go to they go Paul and Silas and they go to Berea and when they get to Berea they interact with these uh, very noble hearted uh, Christians or well they will become Christians but they're Jewish believers at that point um, and, uh, and and so they the, the Jews in Berea they they interact with Paul and his message and then and then come coming into Berea are, are those who stirred up trouble in Thessalonica and forces Paul to go to to go to Athens. And so Paul goes to Athens, 195 miles south of Berea. Uh, Mount Olympus is in the way, so he has to probably go by sea. And, and, and the rest of Acts chapter 17 is, is Paul arriving in Athens and then Paul giving his speech at the Oropagus, which is just this beautiful, uh, this beautiful piece of philosophy and cultural rhetoric by Paul to explain the gospel. And so it just Acts chapter 17 is just one of my favorite chapters in the book of Acts because uh, we see we see the whole picture here of that the the gospel one it, as we said this morning it confronts our disordered desires we see it calling people out of their sin and out of their brokenness and into the life the eternal life that is given by Jesus and and the frank reality is that we don't always like that and then uh, and then we just and we also see Paul's missional his missionary heart here that as he as he's just traveling he's going and no matter what he comes up against uh, culturally or, or religiously um, or politically he continues to faithfully declare the gospel. And so this morning we just we had some great questions. We did live Q and A in the service today, and we had we had some just some really good questions. So I wanted to walk back through some of those questions, but also I wanted to pick up a question that came in from last week when we were in Acts chapter sixteen, and we were looking at uh, the Paul in Philippi, Paul and Silas in Philippi, and we met three characters: the slave girl, Lydia and the Philippian jailer. And the Philippian jailer and Lydia, they both come to believe in Jesus, and then their their whole households are noted. Like Luke says that it's their, their households also come to believe, and then they are baptized. And so the question comes in and says this. In Acts chapter 16, we see several people, the jailer and Lydia, who become Christians. Why are their whole households baptized? Does this passage imply that everyone in their family believed? How does this impact our belief in believers' baptism? So this is a really good question here. And, and often, uh, for, for those Christians who would practice pedo-baptism or, or infant baptism, uh, Acts 16 is one of the most crucial passages for them to support 
uh, an infant baptism instead of a believer's baptism that we would support here at Christ Communion, or, or and, and more within our denomination at large, the, the Evangelical Free Church of America. Um, the reason for that is just because of that term household. And, and honestly, if we're going to be, again, we're just going to be transparent here, we are not sure of what Luke means by that. And for, for thousands of years, right, people that have been reading the scriptures, scholars that have been reading the scriptures for the last 2,000 years are not quite sure of what Luke means by Lydia and her household or the Philippian jailer and his household. We have some, some, some clues, but we are, we are farther away from that context and that culture today um, than, than even they were in the, in the, you know, the 300s and the 500s and the, during the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s and 1600s. We're, we're much farther away from that, that setting there in Philippi when Paul was there. So there's some just intellectual uh, frankness that we have to go. We have to go, well, we're just not quite sure. But here's what we think it means. Uh, in the first century, the, the, the context of uh, Philippi and just the, 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 the Middle Eastern uh, and Asia, Asia Minor um, and into, into Europe, I mean, they're into Europe here, they're into Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece, they're with Philippi. Um, as, as the gospel goes, goes there, uh, the world at large is much more of a shame-honor-based context. And, and so often when a decision was made, it was not just made of the, the the, or when the leader of a household made a decision, it implied or, or it impacted the entire household, right? So the entire household would make would follow in that. Why? Well, because if you didn't follow in that, you would bring dishonor onto the household. And, and so, so there's very there's very much a, an idea here that um, you know when 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 the Philippian jailer, as the head of his household in Roman society, when he made the decision to follow Jesus. He was now making the decision for his entire household, for all of those living in his household. That would have been family members. That could have been servants, male servants, female servants, the whole nine yards. And so uh, they would have now become or taken on the religious identity of being a Christian. And there's a wholeheartedness that is implied in that. Lydia, as the leader of her household. Um, she was a, a wealthy uh, business leader. We we don't know if she's a widow. She's most likely a widow, um, as she is the as she is leading the business. Um, but as the head of her household, and she makes that decision to follow Jesus, they're already a God fearing family. But now they are going to follow the teachings of Jesus. So so there's very much this idea that. Um, that it, that was done in a, in a context of shame and honor, and so that, that, that has implications for how they process this decision, where we approach life very much from the, the lens. In the 21st century West, we approach life from the lens of the individual, and it's the individual who makes the choice, and it's the individual who uh, who has the greatest amount of freedom, right? Even within our family lives, right? Um, we we give our kids uh, autonomy and freedom and those kind of things. And so, uh, so we in the 21st century West uh, approach society as a whole with a different set of lenses than they would have in the first century. Uh, now, does this uh, does this have an impact on our belief of believers' baptism? I don't think I don't think so. I think in order uh, for my friends who use this text to support. Pedo baptism or infant baptism, um, then 
I, th- I think you have to make some pretty big assumptions about what Luke means by his ho- by the household. And, and so um, I think what's what's most clear and the easiest and simplest explanation of the text is that when, when Lydia becomes a believer, she is baptized. And then as her family, her household then is brought into that, they are now believers. Uh, they are baptized as believers, right? So it's again, it's supporting believers' baptism. And that's what we would say here is that baptism is not something that saves you. It doesn't seal you. It doesn't make your salvation extra sticky. It is a public proclamation of a private commitment to follow Jesus. And so what we see here in this text is that both the Philippian jailer and Lydia have made a private decision to follow Jesus. Their households have agreed in that private decision that this is now going to define them. The teachings of Jesus are going to define them as well. And so they're making a public proclamation of that private commitment to follow Jesus. So um, I don't think Acts chapter 16, uh, you know, should change our, our belief of believer's baptism. And, and like I said, I think if um, I have lots, lots of friends that I love and I just disagree, we would disagree. But baptism is not a salvation issue. And that's what's really important here is we're not going to make it a salvation issue. Uh, whether you're sprinkled, whether you're dunked, whether you're baptized as a baby or as an adult, it is faith in Jesus that saves us. And so we got to be careful not to make secondary things uh, primary things. So that was a really good question there, just about baptism and how that all works out in our theology. Well, this morning, again, we were talking about Acts chapter 17, and we got some questions in. And so just wanted to, wanted to review some of those questions here on the podcast today. Um, one of the questions that, that came in, we talked about it both in first and second service, uh, was just how um, when we share the gospel, when we share the good news of Jesus with people, and I try to, and we try to reason with them and show them how it's logical or even rational, um, like Paul did, it seems that their hearts get harder. Uh, any suggestions to these for these scenarios? Uh, I, I shared three things in the, in both services, and I said one: we shouldn't be surprised at the hardness of people's hearts. Right? Um, the gospel confronts our disordered desires, and that that doesn't that often uh, we don't like that. I mean, even as Jesus followers, just think about how long you have been following Jesus, and and, and how how you have grown and the pace of your growth. Right. If you've been following Jesus for five years, well, hopefully you're more like Jesus than when you started. And if you've been following Jesus for 50 years, again, hopefully you're more like Jesus when you started. But I'm pretty sure we can each begin to go back and look at points in our lives and go, oh yeah, I I took a while to grow on that issue or that arena or that area of my life. And I didn't want to give my marriage over to Jesus, or I didn't want to give my finances over to Jesus, or I didn't want to give my parenting or my career or my future or, or, or whatever, right? Put whatever area of your life that you, you reluctantly held on to uh, and you would not give over to Jesus. Why? Because, because the gospel confronts our disordered desires. And at the heart of us, at the heart of man, we think we are better and more capable than we actually are. And so, one, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when, when, when people don't respond to a message that we think is so rational, rational reasonable, uh, life-giving, because we've experienced the life-giving grace of Jesus. Um, even Jesus, we said this uh, this morning, John chapter 4, when Jesus was in Samaria, uh, John tells us that many Samaritans believe, not that all Samaritans believe. So even when the incarnate Son of God was on earth, not everyone bought what he was saying. 
And, and so we shouldn't be surprised when, when, when we're sharing the gospel and people's hearts just remain hard. Secondly, uh, we have to remember that we are not the agents of salvation. And so we need to continually be praying for God to do a mighty work in their lives. And we realize that that work might take years. We may be ones that plant the seeds. There may be another one who comes and waters it. And then, then, then there may be another one who goes and, and harvests the spiritual fruit. Our job, our call is to be faithful for gospel witness. But let's keep praying because uh, God is the one who does the saving work. Um, and, and then, and then, thirdly, so if we're not surprised, um, and we're gonna we're gonna continue we're gonna continue to pray. Um, thirdly, when we are sharing with those folks, um, we have to speak to their felt needs. Right? It's not just clinically presenting the rational facts of the gospel, uh, or the rational facts of the historical validity of the resurrection. It is speaking to the felt needs. What's going on in their life? How would Jesus make a difference in their actual life? I think people are more willing to listen when we can talk about how Jesus has made an actual difference in our lives, not just that oh, going to church is a place I get friends. Well, that's great. That's great. But we can get friends in other places, um, and we want community. Uh, but, but what is the actual difference? Uh, Jesus gave me hope when I was incredibly depressed. I tried everything else, and I couldn't get out of my depression. But Jesus was the one who set me free from that. Jesus is the one. No, I still have I still have down days. I still have hard days. But Jesus is the one who carries me through. Faith in him is the only thing that's made a difference, right? Um, my finances were out of whack. Uh, I could never seem to get my finances in order. And then I started doing my finances uh, the way that God wants me to do finances. And all of a sudden, I started to find that I had more than enough for what I needed. And I was able to be generous, right? When we start telling stories like that, um, about how God's influence in our life is making a substantial difference, I think people it makes people really sit up straighter and listen. So don't be shocked. Make sure that we're praying for them and, and share of, uh, to the felt need. How does Jesus really make a difference in your life? Uh, one of the questions that came in references about a, a Hebrew perspective here, and we were talking about the, the conditions of our heart. We said this, that hard hearts all rob us of joy, right? When our hearts grow hard, when our hearts grow cold, it robs us of joy, joy of things like identity, purpose, joy of, um, of fellowship with God, the joy of repentance. When we, when we walk off the path of self-worship, which is actually leads us to ruin, instead of as we worship ourselves, it leads us to our, our ruin, not our flourishing or our, our best life. Um, and, and, we, and then repentance is then the action of stepping off of that path and onto the path of self-denial, the path of Jesus, which actually leads us to radical goodness and radical abundant life because it's rooted in Jesus. Uh, we talk about the posture of our hearts and all of that and how those that makes a difference, a real difference. And so the question is here, is it true that the Hebrews or the Israelites uh, thinking was, was such that they imagined the heart was the center of thinking? And, and I think the, the answer here is um, yes. Um, and, and part of that is we see the Bible speak over and over again. Uh, just about about the condition of our hearts, um, that our hearts are 
deceitful, <laughs> right? That our hearts are dark, um, that our hearts can't be trusted, right? Um, out of the heart, you know, uh, the wellspring of life flows, you know, those kind of statements within the scriptures. And so, yes, the Hebrews and the Israelites, they definitely saw the heart as sort of the seat of emotions. This, and then when just more than the seat of emotions, it was the center of thinking. And, and so the, the reason for that, I think, is again, because the posture of our hearts make such a difference. But in Acts chapter 17 as well, Paul is speaking to an incredibly Greek audience there in, in Athens, and, and he, he, he's able to even confront them with, with intellectual logic as well. And so, so yes, um, our, our hearts matter, but our hearts often, even if we, even if we come to it and we say, well, I'm very intellectual, or I'm reasonable, or I'm rational, right? And that's the cry of the 21st century West, reason and ration over, or over everything. Well, it used to be, at least in the, in the modern age, as we are well into the postmodern age, it can often feel like reason and rationality are thrown out the window. Um, and, and maybe we're moving back to a more of an emotional, reactive uh, culture. Uh, but, but even those who claim to be highly reasonable and rational, it's, at the end of the day, it's the emotional reality of life is where we is where the gospel flourishes and speaks to our greatest need because that's ultimately an emotional need. It's a it's a seat of the heart need, not just an intellect with our mind need. And so so yeah, so we do need to pay attention to the heart, the condition of our heart. And the Bible speaks about the heart over and over again and how we need to be weary of it if it's not if it's not being redeemed. And, and how we also need to be uh, realize the, the importance of the heart. Out of the heart is the wellspring of life, right? It's, we speak out of it. We, we, our perspectives are driven out of it. Uh, so that's a great question. And, and finally here, we have another really good question we talked about in the second service. It says, if we as Christians are called to have honorable hearts, that was the, the, the hearts of the Bereans. Luke says that they are more noble or more honorable than those in Thessalonica. Uh, because the, those in Thessalonica, they were jealous. They were stirred up. And, and here's what the really interesting thing is there. When Luke says that they were jealous, we've interacted with that idea before in the book of Acts as you read through. Um, we, we saw that on the first missionary journey in Acts chapter 14. They were jealous. Well, what are they jealous of? Um, and, and what they're jealous of, Paul, I think, one, um, this guy's coming into town. And all of a sudden, he's he's the new guy to town, right? And all of a sudden, people are flocking to him. People are listening to him. He's winning people to himself. There's probably something very charismatic about Paul. And so I, I imagine if, I, if I'm a religious leader in that town and a new guy shows up, I'm probably going to have some insecurity and some jealousy that's going to crop up in me as well. Secondly, Paul is also, he's, he's supposed to be sharing an ethnic and a religious heritage with, with uh, these groups of, of Jews, right? He is Jewish. Paul in Philippians chapter 3 is going to go and he's going to say, is there anybody more Jewish than me? Is there anybody of a better Jewish heritage or a Jewish pedigree than I have? I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. Heck, my name is Saul. I'm, I'm, I'm named after the single greatest um, king of the tribe of Benjamin, right? Like, you know, I was educated under Gamaliel, the most famous uh, rabbi of the first century. I'm Harvard educated. I've got all the right pedigree. All of it's foolishness apart from the cross. And that's what Paul is going to say in Philippians chapter 3. All of it's rubbish apart from the cross. And so he preached Christ and Christ crucified. And so when Paul comes in and he's preaching this new message of, uh, of love and grace and forgiveness and ultimately inclusion into the family of God for all people, 
I mean, this includes Greeks who are intellectually and worldview-wise politically opposed to the to the Jewish people of the first century. Um, this this includes the Romans. This includes everybody, and yet the Jews, uh, they it's it's not just it's not just a religious identity at the stake. It's a it's a national identity. It's a heritage that they 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 often probably feel like Paul is just erasing, that he's eradicating, that he's not, he's, he's not holding to. He's supposed to be like them. He's supposed to champion their heritage. And instead, he's inviting everyone to the party, and which is great news, right? And we probably look at it and go, well, that's silly. Why would you be wrapped up in that? But often, how many of us, we end up having those same feelings of, oh, wait, who's included? Who's invited? I'm not sure about that, right? I'm not comfortable with that. So I think we can be sympathetic even to those in Thessalonica and, and others. So when it says that they were stirred up with jealousy, um, I think that's what it means. It means there's a there's both probably an inferiority and an insecurity by this new winsome uh, you know teacher that comes to town, and then there's there's a betrayal, a feeling of betrayal that you are betraying your people by inviting everyone else into the family of God. Don't you know that there are oppressors? Don't you know that there are political enemies? Don't you know that they weren't included because they don't have the right ethnicity or the right ethnic heritage. And, and so, so that's what's stirring them up into jealousy. Um, and so uh, when, when they're there, right, um, then we get to the Bereans who have these honorable hearts as they listen to Paul. So if we as Christians, here's the question, if we, have Christ, if we as Christians are called to have honorable hearts, does that mean we should also be open and respectful to others to listen to the religious views which may contradict our beliefs? It, what is a posture, a proper posture to assume in these situations? And I think, yeah, the answer is yes. We do need to be open, but we need to compare what they're saying, these new philosophies or ideas, back against the truth of Scripture, just like the Bereans did. And that's what that's what's pictured in them as honorable. They were open. They were available to listen. They dialogued. They spent days with Paul listening and chewing with him on these things. And so that's what describes them as honorable, but they saw it, they compared it against the Scriptures. And so if we're walking through this life in this age and we're not comparing uh, philosophies and ideas and teachings back against the Scriptures— well, we're going to end up being like the Athenians who can be who risk being blown to and fro, right? Uh, we we risk being blown to the left, to the right, and all over the place by our own emotions and our and, and our cultural whims. Um, where the Bereans, they had searched the scriptures, they knew the scriptures, they were shaped by the scriptures, their identity was rooted in the scriptures, and because of that, when Paul comes and he brings this new teaching of the gospel, which was new news to them. They searched it against it, and they went, oh, yeah, this really is the fulfillment of all those promises and prophecies, and Jesus really is the Messiah, and he really does, he really does bring new life. Uh, last question here is that uh, this idea of um, do we need to normalize? If, if, we are, if we are wrestling, if we are wrestling uh, with the, the struggles of this age, if we're wrestling with the struggles of this age, um, don't we just sometimes need to normalize uh, our our sin struggles in order to get healing, right? Um, and sometimes so that we so that we aren't living in isolation. And and so part of this is to go, okay, uh, let's define the word normalize. If by normalize we mean that yes, we can admit and acknowledge that this sin struggle or this disorder desire 
It's not exclusive to me. I'm not on an island in and of myself. If that's what we mean by normalize, that we look around the room when we're at church and we say, yep, somebody else struggles with this, then yes, we need to normalize that. We should not feel like I'm on an island. Nobody else understands. Nobody else gets me. Nobody else un, you know, knows what's going on in my life or has gone through this struggle. There is someone else that is going through a struggle that is very similar to yours, a temptation that is very similar to yours, right? Um, so by normalize, if it means that we just acknowledge that it's not uncommon, yes. But if by normalize, we mean what I think the culture around us at large means, that we affirm it and we endorse it, and we say, run in that disordered desire. Uh, we feed that disordered desire because we think that if we just, if we make it normal and accepted, it's going to lead us to flourishing and we're not going to feel wrong or bad about it anymore. Um, then I would say, no, the gospel actually calls us out of that all the time, right? The gospel never endorses or affirms our disordered desires. It calls us out of those things and into the way of Jesus, which is the path of self-denial, not the path of self-worship. And so we just have to be very careful about how we define those words. So uh, again, if we normalize it by saying, we recognize that I'm not the only one struggling with this, yeah, that, that's an important reality for us to, we don't want to get lost on an island in of, our, of ourselves and in of our struggles. But if it means to affirm it, endorse it, and say, run in that disordered desire, well, the scriptures over and over again tell us that that is not, that's just not, that's not okay. That's not how um, it's supposed to, that's not how it's supposed to run or to happen. So again, thanks for texting in these questions. We, we love these questions. Like I said, this morning we did live Q&A in the service because we want to create a dialogue around the scriptures. And, and each week you get a chance to do that as we talk through these things um, around the scriptures and, and, and hear about God's heart for our lives. We get a clarified picture of who he is and how he wants us to live. So can't wait to see you and worship with you again next Sunday. Mm-hmm.